Well, what's happening in Soul City? It's good to be here. Grateful to serve alongside um, Jeannie and Jared uh, on this day. Looking forward to uh, what God has done to for me in this passage as he will bring uh, that word uh, to all of us here. Um, grateful to be here. Uh, my bride and my son in love and my daughter uh, who's expecting we're at the uh, other service. Uh, and my God, oh, I see you. Um, so being able to um, be... Uh, uh, anticipating another grandchild. So it's kind of like, you, I'm like preaching, like, are you okay? Are you rubbing his stomach? Are you okay? What's going on? And she's like, I think his name is Che. It's a boy. Um, I think Che likes church because <laughs> he was moving around or something like, like that. So um, being able to uh, balance that out. So I just want to ask you before I pray, can I be real? Okay. Okay. Now you said I could. So just know I'm from the West Side. So just sometimes I just don't know no better. So I need to ask first. So as things get real, um, remember you said it. You said I could get real. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. Um, Dad, we come now before you thanking you for everything. Thanking you for life, breath, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God, because you are with us through it. We're not alone. You said in your word you will never leave us nor forsake us. We are bound. You are bound with us, and we are bound with you. Be with us now, God. Open our hearts, our minds. Renew us, God, um, as we hear your word today, that we would seek to stretch ourselves to be one, to be what you desire for us to be as one body, not just at a lip service to talk or when it's convenient, but, but for real, for real, that the world will know that you are alive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going through this series, right, as it is in heaven it is around the Lord's Prayer. What is called the Lord's Prayer, they call it that, and it's just, I don't know who tagged it that, but the Lord's Prayer of the prayer that really Jesus taught his disciples, right? And basically it's uh, um, Christ's uh, response to his disciples. His di the disciples asked, yo, um, teach us how to pray. That was the most brilliant ask of all time. In other words, I as a disciple would have said, teach me how to bring somebody from the dead. Can you Watch this. Let me, uh, let me, you know, I would have asked for something like more spectacular that would seem more spectacular, but they asked the most brilliant, powerful question. Out of all the other things that they typically do and have happened, they asked this brilliant question. And Christ responds in this way, right? He says, our Father who is in heaven, right? Our Father, I recognize that you are great. You are in heaven. Holy is your name. You are the bomb. Holy is your name. Then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus is eternal, right? He's all eternal. So when Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's saying, that's where I'm from. <laughs> I'm from around the way in heaven, and I know what heaven is like. I know how we get down in heaven. Heaven is all about God's kingdom represent, and how we get down is representing God in one movement. It don't look like that with y'all right here. So, I'm going to teach you how to pray, and a part of that prayer is that we make down here look like up there. I even believe that people who may have a sense of calling on their life, whether it's in business, education, social work, uh, preaching, whether it's in construction, whatever that calling may be, it is God nudging your heart to say, down here does not look like what it should look like up here with senior citizens. So I'm calling you to work with seniors 
to love on them, to walk alongside them. Down here doesn't look like what it looks like up there when it comes to young thugs on the street. So I want you to make down here look like up there. So I think even when people have a calling, whatever it might be, in a professional world um, or in a local church, I think that there is a prompting of God to say, irritate our heart enough to say, I want down here. For some reason, I cannot not do this, right? The reality of God calling us to be one is also found in John chapter 17, verse 23. So the Bibles that are right in front of you, you want to grab them, you can turn to page 878. And it's in John chapter 17, verse uh, 23. And, and in this passage, it is Christ's high priestly prayer. This prayer is um, considered the longest prayer written out that Christ prays. And this is prior to him going to the cross. And so in John Chapter 17, verse 23, he says this, I in them and you in me, so they may be, uh, so they may be brought to complete unity, he says. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you love me. Now, I come from a participatory worship service. I've been, God's kept me around in ministry, preaching for 31 years. And so I'm used to some response. So I'm going to make sure I help you so you don't feel awkward. So if I go like this, if I feel the prompt of the Lord or something was good that I thought, you know, needs some love on it, I'll just go like this. And you just say, woo, woo, amen, hallelujah, whatever you want to say. You with me? You with me? So here we go. Okay, okay, okay. So Christ, Christ says in this passage, I in them, I, Christ in us, and God in Christ, so that we may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So you see what is at stake? What is at stake when we're not unified is that people will not know Christ. That's what's at stake. So the little backbiting, the little attitude you may have towards someone else, and you may tell somebody else how bogus somebody was, you are basically deferring, deterring someone from seeing Christ. God says, your unity is so strong in me, not in your, in your stuff, causes others to say, hold them up, hold them up. These, is, these are what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be, to follow I need to figure out what they are on, how they live this way, because they're so close together. Unity is so tight together. What's at stake is that people will not know Christ. There is no way, however, for us to be unified out of our own strength. Like there's no way out of our own strength I'm just going to be unified. Like I need my wife and desire my wife to love God more than she loved me because I'm going to be stupid. And I need, and she wants me to love God more than she loves her, than I love her, so that God will bring us together. So I need her to love God more than me, so that when I do something crazy, she's able to say in her way to rebuke me, to challenge me, to grow me, same way with me, with her, so that it is not about my opinion out of my own strength. It is out of what God's going to do to glorify us as a unit together. We pour our lives into Christ. Christ pours our lives out to the world that the world would know him. But we live in the divided states of America. The divided states of America. We just talked about what happened in New Zealand with people who decided some warped way of thinking that these other group of people don't deserve to live because of a faith that they believe in and some kind of fear around that. That's not just in New Zealand. That's on the west side of Chicago. 
That's on the south side of Chicago. That's all over in this United States, the divided states of America. Still under God, this divided states of America, if you will. So to be unified, to be as one, is and can be a challenge with the way this world that we face, right? There's a book called Divided by Faith. And in the book, they do all this research. And in the research, they talk about that we live in a racialized society. So let me tell you um, how it was, you know, growing up. And maybe some of y'all can attest to this. But I'll put myself, and I'm going to see if you will be just as real with me. Growing up, right, the phone rings at the house. Y'all got phones that ring in the house anymore? Phone <laughs> ring in the house. So um, back in the day, there were people who had a phone line, um, and you could take it around the house and put it all the way to your room if the court was long enough. The phone would ring. I'd pick it up. Hello? Oh, hold on. Mama, telephone. Who is it? Some white man. Now, I'm not racist. We just live in a racialized society. Hello, who is it? I don't know, some black guy, some black woman. I don't know, somebody. It was just a way. So some of that was preparing mom to pick up the, to grab the phone. Hello, how are you? How can I help you? <laughs> so mom knew how to handle that conversation in that context. But because we live in such a racialized society, situations are always, wherever, where, wherever they are, there's a part of our culture. Now, race is a social construct that creates division, right? It started way back, if you read uh, Between the World and Me, the reality of that social construct creates uh, an illusion as if that is who we really are and our essence of who we are. But because we live in this racialized society, it creates harder tension to be unified. That's just one layer. My grandson, this great picture of my grandson, we went to the African American History Museum in D.C., Yes, I'm trying to school the boy on old school hip hop, Public Enemy. He's posted up. At, in first grade, at one point we lived in uh, Oak Park and he stayed with us and I'm taking him to school in first grade. And he had already been at the school at, in kindergarten. So I'm taking him now, second, no, first semester, about middle of that first semester, I'm taking him. We had a ritual in the, in, in, um, in the car. We would talk about certain things. We'd count the trees, we'd count people, we'd laugh. He gets in the car this time and says, Bole, which is my grandpa name, which is the best grandpa name ever in life. If you're a grandpa and it's not Bole, your name is lame. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is how it is. If your grandpa named Paul, 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 whatever, lame. Bole is the only name that really counts. He gave it to me at three years old. He just came from heaven. It's, it's, it's a good hookup. So he says, Bole, I want to be white. I'm like, wait a minute, Zion, you're a beautiful African-American young boy, a brown skin. Because he asked me, what color am I? I said, you're brown, you're brown, you're brown skin, African-American. I want to be white, Bole. Now, the school he attended was mostly white. A few uh, multicultural uh, dynamics in the school, some teachers and some other administrative people. But he had been at the school a year and a half. And somewhere along the lines, whether it's a kid, whether it's a situation he saw or whatever, he saw white as being better than him at first grade. I said, you got to understand, your brownness makes my light-skinnedness strong. And my, my light-skinnedness makes your brownness strong. And your brownness makes another dark-skinned person strong. I'm trying to say we need all the crayons in the coloring box. I'm trying to help him understand it at a, at a first-grade level. Racialized society, harder to get unified. Now he's in third grade. He's in third grade, and he is at a school predominantly African-American, and he gets into the car my uh, uh, daughter's car, and he sits in the back seat and says, I hate white people. Now, a few years ago, you want to be white. Now you, now you hate white people. Make your mind up, is what I wanted to say. He sits in the back of the car. My son-in-love, who's a teacher, says, why? 
And he begins to talk about his teacher, who's white, who shoots shots at him when he doesn't fully understand something. And or when Zion is not up or acting appropriately, he shoots shots at him to perhaps maybe some way to get his attention. But he is embedding that into this white guy does that. This doesn't happen with the black teachers at third grade at nine years old. You imagine, that's heavy to carry. That's heavy to carry. So indirectly, he is becoming what is called by W. E. Du Bois and the souls of black folk living with a dual consciousness even at nine years old. W. E. Du Bois wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folk and talked about the struggle that it is to live in two worlds. You know how exhausting it is to live as with dual consciousness. You know how exhausting that is? That is, now I'm, I'm biracial, so it's super exhausting. I want some sauerkraut and some greens. I'm all over the place. <laughs> but to live in that dual consciousness at nine, to recognize this is how I got to flow with this cat. This is how I flow over here because of a sense of disunity. Racism keeps us disunified. The tension of that pseudo setup, racial construct to keep us divided it's harder times to fight through because there are things that actually literally happen and have, have, have happened, whether it's lynchings, whether it's politics that keep things separated, whether it's a police situation, whether it's a person going into uh, uh, Aurora and, and, and shooting other white folk. There are things that happen that create that tension. What I love about the civil rights movement was the fact that there was two common threads, I believe, that kept people unified. Because the same issues they got, they had then, they, they, we have now, they, they had then. It wasn't like all black folks just all got along. No, there was the same crazy stuff happening with black folk then like they are now. I don't like you. I want to be with you. I can't stand your mama. Whatever it was, it was the same kind of tension. So it wasn't like mystical as much as it was necessary, necessary for a greater cause. The two things underneath was a common pain. They had a common pain, a reality that... This racial white supremacist system that's set up to keep us out is killing us, is hurting us, and causing harm to us. And then they had a common hope, a common hope that we, the people who are the most disenfranchised, frustrated with all that's going on, have the power within us to overcome this. You and I, as followers of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, have that same two common realities. We have a common pain of evil and what God has done in our own life. And God has forgiven us and restored us and brought healing from the sin out of our life that separated us from God. We have a common darkness around that. I don't know what yours might have been. I know what mine is. But as we connect with one another in faith, we have that joint history together. I know what I've been through with Christ. So you are a follower of Christ. I know what you perhaps in your own world have been through. A common pain of evil and overcoming evil. Then we have a common hope. That hope is found in Jesus Christ. And that he alone, not because of how good I did, not because I'm this way or that way, because of him alone loving me uncontrollably. Christ loving me, uncontrollably, pouring out my life into his, he pours back into me so that we can pour into the world. Common pain, the common hope. God's best work is when we are most unified. His best work is when we are most unified. There is a group of natives, Native Americans, First Nation Hopi 
natives, mostly in Arizona. And as these different professors would study the Hopi, they would realize how brilliant they were, how insightful they were. Oh, my goodness, how did they learn this? Where did they get this from? And they began to study them, and then they said, with this brilliant idea, as only Americans would think of this, uh, let's give them an IQ test. So they get the Hopi leaders together and the other uh, men and women, and they sit them down, and they tell them what to do with this IQ test. There's so many questions, and you got to fill this out. And when you... Um, when you finish after two hours, 300 questions, then you will see what your test results are. All right, cool. They show them what to do and all the little squares to fill out. And as they're sitting there, they, they, they start the clock. Okay, two hours starts now. They hit the clock. And as soon as they hit the clock, the, the people are like, so what is the answer number five? Did you see? Did you understand that? The other person like, so what is this math? How does this math work this way? The professor person runs back in, back, wait, wait, wait. You're not supposed to talk to one another. This is not how this works. Um, you're supposed to just see how you are able to take the test yourself and get the score that's the highest score. The leader said, we, we can't take this test because it's not about who's the smartest in the room if we all can't get there together. The reality, <laughs> the reality of life that way. What if we live that way? You're on the bus. Somebody done got fair. You don't sit there and be like, they should have had their fair. I had my fair. I don't know what they on. I got to get to work, too. I got to get to school, too. Should have, get your butt off the bus. That's what I'm talking about. Ha! But you're going to find a fair today. No, 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 no. I got 50 cent. Here you go. It's cool. Don't worry about it. What if we said we don't get there individually unless... We get there collectively. What if, we, what if we lived that way? Man, our politics would be different. The move of God would be phenomenal. You know, I was in Kenya, and, and I was with uh, the Maasai tribe. And the Maasai tribe, you know how they greet each other? I was trying to say it in their language, but I, I, I can't even speak English well. <laughs> they greet each other by asking the question, how are the children? That messed me up. All I do in my whole career of ministry, 31 years, is with young people. And they asked the very first thing coming in the door. Not, hey, what's up? How you doing? What you eat last night? What was the game? No, how are the children? Because if the least of these, if the least of these are good in the village, everybody good. If the shorties are taken care of, they got food, they got clothes, everybody going. That's a West Side phrase. Everybody finna be good. <laughs> what if we thought like the hoppy Natives. You see, people tend to live and act congruently with how the world occurs to them. So if the world occurs to you like unified, then you're going to function in that way. You ever met somebody from another country, another town, and they don't understand America. They don't understand, why do you drive on this side of the street? That's the wrong side of the street, right? Or whatever the case is, because their world, in their world, how they live and act is congruently functioning different than, than ours. Where have we given up to live in that level of unity with each other? Christ desires our minds and hearts to be as one. Again, Christ does his best work in our life when we are most unified. Watch parents. Watch parents. Kids know when you're disunified. Oh, snap. They're arguing. Oh, snap. I'm going to get them shoes. I'm about to get those shoes. <laughs> so, Dad, you know, I was wondering. Um, all of a sudden, they know the disunity. I've been played like that several times. I'm grateful that my kids are grown now. I don't have to worry about that. But the reality of the fact that they would know, okay, yeah, let's go. And I get the show. I'm coming back. Kim is like, why would you get them these shoes? What? 
I thought you said, they told me, and they like, ha ha, because they recognize the disunity. In a broader, bigger scale is how we look to the world as followers of Christ. Disunity. Somebody said, this is what we believe, this is how we believe it, this is how we function. But that way you function harms a bunch of other people. In the scriptures, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 26. And in your Bibles, it's on page 951. You can see it on the screen as well. Paul, who was a writer of most of the New Testament, writing the letters to the churches in different parts of the New Testament, he was in jail. And he was a missionary to all these different uh, groups of people. And because he was a missionary and the message he was preaching was of Christ, the leaders to be at that, the leaders at that time didn't want that, and they were trying to jail him as much as they could. And so Paul in Philippi is in jail with another human being, another guard, because God had done various times miraculous things where Paul was broken out of jail. All of a sudden he's singing, and the whole jail crumbles apart, and he walks, walks right out. So they said, this time you're going to stick to Reggie. We're going to click you with Reggie, and you, and Reg- you ain't going nowhere because you stay with Reggie. So Paul, in this distressed place, writes a letter to the church in Philippi. And in this passage, in this book, he writes the word joy and rejoice more than any other letters he writes. And he's writing to them because he's wanting them to understand what it means to be unified. Look at what it says in chapter 1, verse 27, page 951. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you because I'm free or only hear about you because I'm still locked up, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, serving together as one for the faith of the gospel. He is saying that whether I'm locked up or whether I'm I'm out, I want to know that you're going to be living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ means that you are pursuing to be one with each other. He says one spirit. And then he says striving together. Striving means I'm doing this on purpose. Striving means I'm focusing on trying to make sure I don't get what you think and the logic of it all. I'm trying to understand so that we can move towards being one with each other. See, I can't go to the gym in my house and go downstairs and sit by the uh, elliptical and be like, man, whoo, I'm sure getting my cardio on. I'm getting my cardio on. I got the nice little sweatsuit outfit. Whoo, man, I can't go to the weights and be like, oh, let me touch them. Oh, my arms are getting swole. I'm getting strong. No, 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 no. I have to strive to get on the elliptical. I have to strive to say, how many minutes is it? One minute. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Strive means we are purposefully pursuing one another for that oneness. Why? Because, he says, the faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, that is what is at stake, and yet that is what is our foundation of why we strive. We don't strive in vain. We don't pursue this in vain out of our own strength, out of our own ability, out of our own notoriety. We do this out of our love for who Christ is, because we poured our hearts and life into him. He pours into us that pours into the world. He's saying, live worthy of the gospel, one spirit, and striving together as one. Are you walking worthy? Or are there people that you know that you could pursue to be unified with, but that's okay. It's all right. I see them when I see them. 
are there people that you are walking with, that you are pursuing unity with? I believe sometimes as followers of Christ, we're intimidated to go to hard places with each other for some fear that we can't figure it out together. You see, um, <laughs> um, I didn't ask, I don't know, maybe you did. I didn't ask for the people in my family to be in my family. Like, you know what I'm saying? I didn't say, hey, I want a person with a fro, you know what I'm saying? I want a nice car in my family. No, I just came out and here they were. Okay, here we are. We in the hood, in the projects, what we own, what we doing, right? You didn't ask for people in your family, but they're there. So when you had that family reunion, that drunk uncle sitting there to sustain your faith, all of your personal space. You still in school? You still in school? Hey, you still in school? I mean, you just, yes, 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 I am. We still. You love that family. Even though they got the issues, you walk, I'm going to make sure you get home and five million times to drive you home. You didn't ask for this family, but they're your family. So it is with followers of Christ. I'm sorry to tell you, but I, I'm in your family. <laughs> I'm going to give you a sorry now in case I do something stupid after church. And you'll be like, yep. <laughs> Yep, but the reality of us being together like physical family is what Paul is trying to get us to learn and understand. No, you might not have people over for a lock-in and spend the night and kick it, but you will learn and pursue to learn, strive to learn how to be one so that at the cost of the gospel, people will say, that's the kind of people I want to be with. Those are the people that love Jesus. This is the community I want to belong to. That is what is at stake. You know, my wife and I made a decision 30, we married 34 years, so 36 years ago when we met each other that we would never use the divorce word in our marriage. And there was a time when we were separated for five, eight months, nine months, and God brought us back together. And some wisdom that we had because of our own experiences with family, we just said, this is not going to be us. And even though we did crazy stuff, or I did crazy stuff, she was great. I did bogus stuff. Um, and God brought us back together. That is a, a choice we made. We made a decision to function that way. I'm saying that to you because unity is a decision. Amen. Work with me, work with me, work with me. Unity is a decision. And so if I'm going to be purposeful, I can't just accidentally be unified. Oh, hey, man, I'm glad we're on the same page. No, no, it's a purposeful thing. I'm making a choice to decide to be unified. With you. I don't agree with everything you're with. We are together in the faith. And because of the cause of Christ, we are grounded in him. Philippians chapter 2, as Paul continues to write, on the same page, 951, verses 1 and 2, he says, therefore, he says, therefore, because you're walking worthy of the call and you're pursuing to be one and you're striving to be one because of the faith of Christ, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. You see those things he just says right there? He says, like-minded, same love, one spirit, one mind. Like-minded in the original language, in the Greek, he is meaning same attitude. And that word that verb there is the same verb at the last part when he repeats it again and says one mind. But it's a little caveat. So one, he's saying, have the same attitude. And the other one, he's saying, have the same attitude, mind as this. So in the Greek, it means minded this or this mind. What mind is he talking about? 
What mind is he asking us to, to, to be one with? But then he goes and says the same love and the same one in spirit. So the same love, agape, unconditional love for one another. Again, you cannot love this way out of your own strength. We have to pour ourselves out into Christ. Christ pours himself into us that he then pours our, 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 our hearts and life to the world. Then he says one in spirit, meaning one accord. We're in the same agreement. We're in the same rhythm together. But he says like-minded, same attitude, one mind, mind like this. What mind like this? He's going to get to that in a second. Look at verse 3 says. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. You know, Mother Teresa has a great quote, and it says, whenever there's an absence of peace, it is because we forgot that we belong to one another. Yo, what if we literally walked out tomorrow, walked out today, walked to our spheres of influence, wherever, and said, I belong to you. You need some water? I belong to you. Let me open this door. I belong to you. Let's have a talk because there's some conflict that we have between. Because we belong to one another, let's figure this thing out. What if we function that way? You know how many people be like, wait a minute, I never seen that before. That's what God looks like? That's what God looks like. People who belong to one another. It's crazy, right? I work with young men who are either considered to potentially shoot other people or to get shot. That's a part of our ministry at the firehouse community. We hire these guys. We take them off the block. These guys are so bound, before we connect with them in our outreach team, with the world that they live in that seems violent and crazy, and they do or die with each other. I want that same tenacity in a righteous world. What if we live just as tenacious as these cats do in a righteous space? What would that look like? Instead of shooting each other down, we're loving each other. We're hunting each other to love one another. Pursuing that in a way that glorifies Christ. He's saying in this passage in verse 3 and 4, do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, he is not saying don't take care of yourself. Don't be... Guided and directed by strengthening yourself. I can't put the mask on you in a plane, they say, you know, to help you breathe unless mine's on. So there has to be some awareness of my own ability and strength, right? Um, there has to be a balance of what that is. But he's saying, as I am with you and taking care of you, be sure to look at others around you and how you can recognize the fact that we belong to each other. Then he moves into verse 5, and he says this in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. That's, that word mindset is the same word he used before as like-minded, same word he used before as one mind. So he's saying now, same attitude, like-minded, one mind, mind like this. What mind like this? Mind like Christ. Mind like Christ is broken down this way. Who? Being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He is saying that Christ emptied himself. In the, in the Greek, is konosko. He, that's the only word I really know in Greek, but he emptied himself that way. 
to God. God and him are one. We are in Christ. We are one with God. We are then examples to be one with each other. He emptied himself. The same attitude, the mind like this, the mind like what? Like who's Christ? That we would consistently empty ourselves of ourselves, empty ourselves of our mess. We would take our stuff and empty it out. So the Christ would use this. To bring healing and restoration to the world. The world is looking for a community that is one. There is systems in place that seem to be one, but functioning opposite of righteousness. But people adhere to those systems as if that is God in and of itself. Whether it's employment, whether it's work, whether it's corruption, whether it's injustice. And people function in a way that that's what and how it should be. But that's because I believe that there's been a void of followers of Christ who say, no, 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 no. This is how we ought to live in Christ, to be one as we consistently pour ourselves out before God. God uses that and pours our life out to the world. There was a preacher who would meet with other preachers, black, white, Latino, Asian preachers in a particular community. And they committed to build with each other, to figure things out as different ethnicities, we would figure out who we are together and what we do in this community. And so we would really break things down and be open and honest about racial tensions and about conflict so that we could become one as these preachers. That perhaps that would roll over into our churches. And they would meet and they would get into some grimy stuff and they would really go in with the complexities of multicultural tension and the racialization. They met, it was rich, it was good, they kept coming once a month. At the end of the year, this first year of this gathering, they all went to their own places for Christmas and uh, came back, you know, said they would come back at the, uh, the beginning of the year. So one man, one preacher goes to his hometown with his family and visits them and hanging out. And in the family kind of situation, he had a relative that was racist. And the family member there at the table with his daughter is just going in on black folk and this and that and this and that and this and that. And his daughter, she's like five or six, getting heated like, Dad, is this, is this how this goes? What is this go? And Dad just says, oh, that's your uncle. Let's not pay attention to him. Let's just, just, just leave. The next year, they all come back together, all the preachers, and they're all talking about what happened over the holidays and what they did. And the preacher says, man, I was at my family's house and my uncle come and man, he talked about black people and he talked about this and it was just embarrassing. And my, my daughter and I, we just couldn't deal with it. We just up and walked out. The leader, the African-American pastor who brought all these folks together a year ago started weeping, started bawling. He couldn't stop. He was out of control. He was hard for him to breathe. He was in tears. About 20 minutes later, he comes back. He gets himself together. Nobody knew why, what happened, what triggered that. So they're like, you okay? What happened? He said, man, you didn't take me with you. You didn't take me with you to that dinner table. Our oneness <laughs> is taking each other with us. Our unity together in Christ is taking you with me, taking me with you. So that wherever we go, there's not a separation of our unity together. I mean, if you're married, you may say, I take my wife with me. I take my husband with you. You may 
have a significant other. I take this person with me. You may have a close friend. I'm going to take my close friend. In your heart, in your mind, your spirit, you take them with you. So things happen. You're like, no, that's, that's really not how, how that goes. Or, yeah, that's great. That's how, that's, that's how they like to live and celebrate that. But taking each other with us. And the more that we pour ourselves out, the more God pours back into us. This man was stuck on the side of the road. His car went into a ditch. As he's in this ditch, he's struggling for hours in this rural area to try to get out. Nobody's coming by. It's dark outside. Finally, he hears a man coming with a horse with bells on it. And he says, stop, stop. Could you help me get my car out? I don't know if your horse can, but can you, can you, can you pull me out? He's like, okay, I'll try. So he gets the stuff and latches up to the car, and he has a little whip thing, and he says, you know, Becky, Brenda, Johnny, Sammy, and he smacks the whip, and the horse takes off. And the man is, like, grateful for the car being removed and out and being able to get out safely. But he said, I got one question, man. Um, maybe you don't know this, but you got one horse. You got one horse, and you named all these different names. Like, why do you name all these names? The farmer said, my horse is blind. And if my blind horse would have recognized that he was the only one pulling this car out, you might not have pulled it out. We live in a place in the world where people are in ditches. Maybe we're in ditches. And we need not to be blinded by it, but we need to call on one another to pull each other out. Not to be intimidated by you in a ditch. Not to diss one another because you're in a ditch. You weren't in a ditch yesterday, now you're in a ditch today, now I can't talk to you. That tends to be the pattern. That's a more exciting pattern to be in, to join and co-sign with everybody else dissing someone because they're in a ditch. But that's not how God wired us. God wired us to be in him and our foundation grounded in him. And so as we pour ourselves out with our attitudes, with our politics, with our nonsense, with our selfishness, God pours back into us and continues to restore us. Who do you need to take with you? Who do you need to take with you? Who is it that you have left back and have decided, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to take them with me? God is calling us to be one, to be unified, that, that as it is in heaven, unified, that it is here on earth. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's worth it. I'm going to ask if you would stand up now and hold each other's hand across the aisles. Hold each other's hand across the aisles up top. Y'all can scoot down, man. Y'all can scoot down. Y'all can scoot down and grab him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I ain't trying to put nobody on front street. But look to the person to the right and to the left and say, you stuck with me. <laughs> and as you do that, stay together. God continues to fill you back up. We gain so much by being unified together than we can ever do apart. Let us pray. God, you are doggone amazing. And every single moment of every day, God, let us experience what that amazingness looks like. Let us experience the crazy love you have for us. Let us experience the unity that you taught us how to have to be one, to be same attitude, 
to have the mind of Christ. That mind of Christ empties himself to God, that that God you replenish us, and that that nourishes the world. And the world looks at us and says, that's the God I, I should follow? Let us today, let us today, God, recognize that we are stronger together and do whatever it takes to continue to be in that strength than we ever will be apart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.